0: My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you But if you wanna make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there
1: behind you
2: Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Tackburn, and today (laughs) we are touching on one of King's perhaps not most well-known villains, but most beloved within King's Dominion, uh, a little monster named Tack. This is the beginning of a multi-part series in which we're going to discuss Desperation and Regulators, both released in 1996. One, Desperation as Stephen King. One, Regulators as Richard Bachman. They were co-released together. on September 24th, 1996, uh, number one bestsellers for 50, 15 weeks. I think Desperation was always ahead of Regulators, but they were always at the top. Um, and yeah, we're going to discuss Desperation. We're going to discuss Regulators. And then we're going to do an episode where we kind of discussed uh, sort of the alternate worlds that are happening here. The fact that these two books share characters and plot points and things of that nature. It's going to be really cool. But before we dive into this, let's say hello to our panel. And when you introduce yourself, Please also tell us uh, your first experience with the book, whether it was reading it, seeing it in a bookstore, whatever, as well as what edition you read on this round. Jen, why don't you introduce yourself first?
3: Hi, this is Jen. I hate critics, Adams. <laughs> and <laughs> I first read this on my chronological reread. So it was about five or six years ago, I think when I got to it, and I'd already read Regulators. And for some reason, I had just I think it looked too Western to me. And that's just not one of my favorite genres. So I avoided it and got to it. And it really, um, I have such mixed feelings about this book. Um, it, but it's one that really challenges me. And I like, turn over a lot of the thoughts and so I have this memory when I was teaching of drinking cold brew coffee for the first time and going into my principal's office and getting so like amped up on the caffeine and just talking about this book non-stop to her and like the concept of God <laughs> being cruel until I know it was like a mile a minute and at some point I remember she like called the the secretary to come in and like talk to her about something and um, so that's, that's my memory that's tied with this but this is um this time I read the audiobook um and I referenced the Signet paperback edition I have I'm really looking forward to talking to about this one because this is, there's a lot here, and I actually had to listen to it twice for this episode because my mind does not want to accept this book. Like it's so <laughs> it's so hard for me to wrap my brain around the concepts, and it's like really harsh in places. And and I love a lot of what it's saying, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about some other things. But really looking forward to talking about it. So
2: was who did the audiobook?
3: Kathy Bates.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say I thought it was Kathy yeah. Bates. That's pretty cool.
3: Yeah, it is cool. She does a great job.
2: Dan, why don't you say hello, and how did you first encounter this book? Uh, This is Dan Pye Flieger, (laughs) and great character. Um,
0: Yeah, so I actually read this book in 2005, and it was gifted to me by Dan Caffrey, uh, his mother. Fellow loser. Yeah, she used to run a charter school, and one time she was kind of clearing out the library, so she gave me both first editions of this and The Regulators, So, I read in 2005. I read it again this past summer. And then this time I actually did the audiobook with Stephen King narrating.
2: Oh, I didn't know there was one with him.
0: It's great because, you know, there's always people have their little accents and ways of saying things. And when he says vegan, he says vegan. (laughs) She was on a vegan diet. And I was like,
3: (laughs) oh, Steve. Yeah.
0: And I was like, is that on purpose or did he just, (laughs) I don't know. But it was just cracking me up. Um, But I, I kind of agree with Jen. Like, I. I enjoy this book, but I have trouble distinguishing the characters sometimes, and that's not usually something I have issues with. I mean, I get like the main characters, but some of the peripheral ones, they kind of you know, I had to go back and be like, "Wait, wait, who said that?" and like reread it. So,
2: lots of A lot thoughts. of a lot of people come fast and furious at the end when the flashbacks start happening. Right. Um yeah. uh what what edition did you read for this one? This was the first edition. Oh, so nice. You can see behind me,
0: I've got them ah, displayed. Oh, I've got them set yes. up. Um, yeah. So nice. I, I always thought that was really cool with the covers,
2: um, just how yeah, they, how how they, they pair intersect. Up. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then joining us, we have Anna Marie Cox. Say hello.
1: Hi. This is Anna Marie Audrey Weiler Cox.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and sort of my funny story about this book is that I don't remember the first time I read it because mm-hmm. it was during my drinking years. Mm-hmm. And one of the benefits of, of being a drunk is that you get to reread books all the time and kind of <laughs> discover them. <laughs> and I cannot tell you like how many Stephen King books that's true of for me that like mm-hmm. I have remembered that I liked them, but then not much else about them. But you get to mm-hmm. you know reread them for the very first time. So this was probably the third time I read this book, but probably the most clear. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm, yeah. Um,
1: although I did read it in the process of moving. So that's another, another kind of um dementia, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? It's always, I guess sort of like with Jen, like it's just always kind of stuck with me. Like even when I read it in my drinking years, which is, you know, kind of ironic also given i um, you know, all the kind of AA themes I know we're going to talk about. Um something about it just tangled with me. The shining's the same way. Like I think those are two of his, you know, most deeply, um, I mean, Addiction Runs is a thread throughout his work, which I love, but those are the two books that to me, like, really kind of tangle with it in a yeah. a way that, that connects with who I am. So um, mm-hmm. I'm excited to talk about it, especially now, um, like, full of AA in my head <laughs> and being able to see, like, the... The sort of clear kind of parallels he's either consciously or not consciously drawing with with kind of the theology they have in AA and, and the theology of this book. So, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. And what edition did you read on this reread? Oh,
1: I have the first one as well. I got the first one. I got I I, I bought on like eBay. They're not expensive nice. because they were such bestsellers. But I got the eBay. yeah. I got the, the first them. edition of both of them, and the covers are They're, cool.
2: Yeah, they mm. are. I um I first read this book. Uh back when it came out I had the Signet edition with the bear head. Um uh oh you have it too. Mel. That's bad, yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah, and I have I have sort of fond memories of this one in in sort of a weird way. I was very much an indoor kid when I was growing up and my parents were not. They loved, and we would go on vacation once a year to Houghton Lake in Michigan. And I didn't like fishing. Now I love fishing. Now I love like outdoor stuff. But when I was a kid, I hated I hated it. And they would always make me go out in the boat. And so I, I bought Desperation at like a Walmart or something in Houghton Lake. And then I took it out on the boat uh, every time my parents would make me. So I read the majority of this while like drifting across Houghton Lake as my parents fished and I just read it in the corner of the boat by myself, uh, like a little weirdo. And uh I absolutely loved it. And it, I think I liked it because it was nasty in the way that I enjoyed King's nastier works. Uh, when I was young, I love all the gore. I love all sort of the various adult intrigue that sort of happens here. And I also was very interested in the religious themes, although, and perhaps I'll talk about this a little bit more, but I've always had a you know a pretty intense, weird relationship with Christianity despite not being raised with it. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with various movies and books that I read when I was young that were, um, and I wouldn't call this book actively Christian necessarily, but it is, um, it does portray, uh, um, it's it's similar to the stand in that it, it seems to exist in a world where there, where there is a God and there, you know, where there's a great good and there's a great evil and i think because my familiarity was only with christianity when i was that age i filtered it all through that lens and it contributed in a lot of ways i think to when i got saved when i was in college and i became like a very intense evangelical christian and i think a lot of it i had developed this sort of vision of god based on all these different things i'd read and Mm -hmm. a lot of it had to do with the stand and with desperation um So yeah, so this book and rereading it now, this is probably my third read, but my first in many, many, many years. And so it's 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 really kind of fun to revisit uh with a more nuanced understanding of god what this book is actively a- actually trying to do and what king was probably struggling with at the time so uh yeah and i i read it on my kindle so i didn't reread this specific version and i don't think this is the version i owned i just got a bunch of king books back from mike that we used to have in our old office um and I don't think this is mine because I remember mine was really beaten up, but he gave it to me anyways. So um, so yeah, I never had the cool hardcover editions, which I wish I did because they look cool as hell. Um, and on that note, let's pop into just discuss the history of this a little bit. Um, it was written between November 1st, 1994 and December 5th, 1995, released by Viking on September 24th, ninety six, And um, yeah, it was co-released with the regulators, which very strange sort of marketing move, uh, but King was really into these sort of gimmicky releases at the time. He also released uh, The Green Mile in installments in the same way that um, I believe Dickens used to, and he was very interested in these in these uh, marketing gimmicks, and that would stick with them too, because it was only a few years later that he later released the first ebook, which was uh, Riding the Bullet, um, and really kind of pushing the uh, boundaries of what because I think he had all this power within the publishing world. And he was like, well, you know, what can we do to make it more interesting? And so the... Uh Uh, Desperation and Regulators were released uh, together with covers that intersected. Really cool artwork. Love it. As for where this book came from, uh, he was inspired to write it while driving his daughter's car across the country back in 1991. Uh, He visited a small desert community, Ruth, Nevada, near US 50. And he was driving through it and it was really empty and creepy. And his first thought was that the town's inhabitants were all dead he then wondered who had killed them. And the voice in his head said, it was the sheriff, um, cut to September 1994. And uh, King hopped on his Harley, did a 10 city tour of independent bookstores in support of insomnia. I believe we talked about that in our insomnia episode. And uh, yeah, it was right after that that he started writing the book. And Johnny Maronville, one of the main characters, he is doing a very similar sort of uh, hopping on his Harley, riding across the country. So clearly a lot of King in that character and in this story.
0: Wait, he wrote about an author? He wrote about an author. Let me just,
2: sorry, not to de <laughs> On a harley Okay, On a harley. wow. Novel approach. Okay. Resume.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, halfway through writing, he got an idea for another book uh, about, quote-unquote, guns, toys, and suburbia and decided to write The Regulators using the characters from Desperation and publish both books simultaneously. Uh, really strange, interesting stuff there. Um, yeah, and then... I guess I pulled some quotes here um, just to kind of get a read on King's mindset regarding desperation, but also his mindset regarding God. This is generally, as we've hinted at, this is generally considered one of the more explicitly spiritual books uh, that King has written. Um, one of the main characters, David Carver, who's a 10 year old boy. He basically is a incredibly devout Christian after his best friend who was uh, injured in a you know horrible car accident uh, was mirac- miraculously recovered after David prayed to God to, re- to heal him. And he has developed this sort of quiet, um, I don't know, miraculous spirituality that his parents think is weird, which I relate to because my parents thought it was weird when I became a Christian as well. So, um, which is another thing I think I related to about this book when I was younger. Uh, but yeah, I, and then, you know, basically, uh, If you're listening to this, you probably do know the whole story. The arc of the book does find many characters sort of coming to terms with the idea that they are on a mission from God to take out this evil uh, entity born from, you know, uh, the bowels of the earth called Tack. And um, yeah, so it's interesting stuff. So I figured it would be helpful to find some uh, quotes from King about God and things of that nature. So I'll read one here. This is from a salon interview in 2008. He says, I was raised Christian and I was raised to believe in the idea of the Antichrist. My wife said that she was raised a Catholic. The attitude of the Catholic church is give them to me when they're young and they'll be mine forever. It isn't really true. A lot of us grew up and we grow out of the literal literal interpretation that we get when we're children, but we bear the scars all our life. Whether they're scars of beauty or scars of ugliness, it's pretty much in the eye of the beholder. He continues later. It's an effort to say, let's give God his due here. Too often in novels that are speculative, God is kind of is a kind of kryptonite, and that's about all that it is, and it goes back to Dracula, where someone dumps a crucifix in Count Dracula's face, and he pulls away and runs back into his house. That's not religion. That's some kind of juju, like a talisman. I wanted to do more than that. I wanted to explore what that means to be able to rise above adversity by faith, because it's something most of us do every day. We may not call it Christianity. I wanted to do that. I wanted it to be a God trip. So that's him speaking um, directly about desperation. Um, Does anything here when I guess I think a lot about the stand where when he talks about this idea of God being kryptonite, I can see that sort of in the hand of God sequence at the end of the stand. Uh, Does anyone else have thoughts on perhaps the God of the stand versus the God of desperation and what perhaps what ties we can perhaps uh, draw between them, Flieger, What do you? Um,
0: yeah, so as someone who was raised Roman Catholic, which is the much more ancient form of Catholicism, <laughs> um, this book felt like Old Testament God, and the stand felt like New Testament God. Um, mm, you know, Old Testament yeah. is a lot more of a black and white God. I mean, even says like he's a jealous God, right? He's mm-hmm. cruel. There's not a lot of talk. I mean, even kind of what you were saying with like the talismans and you know, the holy water can burn a vampire. It's sort of this ancient almost superstition to me. Um, And someone who's not religious anymore seeing The Stand, it reminded me of my friends who were like evangelicals and born again where it was like, God is love. And I was like, that's not what I'm hearing when I go to church. I'm hearing (laughs) a lot of fire and brimstone. Um, So I think this was, I would actually say this is more religious than The Stand just because it's very explicit. Whereas in The Stand, there's still some characters that are like, well, maybe there's another explanation. You know, even though the evidence is all there, there's a little more skepticism. Whereas this, I think it's hard to doubt David and his powers. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I think that, I don't know. I think the number one, I think the old Testament God is pretty present in the stand. They just don't talk about the cruelty as much. I feel like, Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. any God that would, you know, slaughter 99.9% of humanity, that's, that's pretty cruel, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But it was one of the things that actually I think is a weakness of the stand is they don't ponder that that much. Like those who survive are kind of like, oh wow, well it's really terrible that everyone died, and I guess God is calling us. So cool, you know? Like, (laughs) Mm, (laughs) but there's no one again. One of the weaknesses is there's very little kind of survivors guilt in the stand which I don't know, I feel survivor's guilt now, like in the (laughs) the middle of a pandemic and being healthy and employed and whatnot, you know? Um, And I do think that this is an attempt to grapple more seriously, more consciously with God's cruelty. Um, And I find it kind of satisfying. Like, I think it's a real, I mean, I don't know if I believe all the answers that King kind of comes up with, but I think it's a real genuine grappling with it. And not kind yeah. of like mm-hmm. the stand does again, like the stand doesn't, doesn't try to engage with the cruelty of God. It just, it just looks at like the, right. the, the ben- beneficence of beneficence. Yeah. Whatever, you know, goodness. Um, yeah. the other thing I would say in comparing the theology of this to the theology, of the stand is the evil is somewhat consistent too, which is to say that the evil is powerful, but capricious, and um, mm-hmm. ultimately dependent on others to enact its evil, like mm, that it yeah. needs people to have faith in it or it needs people to want to have want something from it. And I you know of course in the stand, it's like the, the Randall flag levitating or not, right? Like he only can levitate, he only has power if everyone gives him power. And I feel like there's a yep. similar thing going on here with TAC. I mean, it, I always think of, king's evils always have some great weakness and it's like i think it's pride Mm -hmm. and arrogance like all of his big bads like that's their you know if you look at it too right like they're always kind of the bastard children of whatever greater power there is and always kind of wanting too much so
2: yeah i love that like that's something i think about a lot is is sort of the inherent. that the that the fact that a lot of the evils they feel like fail sons in their own way, <laughs> like they're trying to uh, be a little bit too big for their britches, and uh, that that's and then it kind of often results in sort of infrastructural collapse, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I find very funny. Um, Jen, did you have
3: thoughts? I did. Yeah, I have a, a lot of thoughts about this, and I'm gonna try to keep it separate from my thoughts about like AAM recovery, but it's just they're so mm-hmm. intertwined. And I was uh, I was raised. I've been going to church my entire life and was raised um, Methodist and Presbyterian, which have a lot of overlapping um, guiding principles. But um, I, so I read this when I was still kind of a believer and I don't want to say I'm not a believer anymore, but there was a certain point where I really turned away and I said, I still believe in this, but I don't want this. And it was, Mm -hmm. and I, so when I look at the difference between desperation and the stand, I feel like, Ana, I think you're totally right. I think he is wrestling with his understanding of religion and God. And I think the difference I see in The Stand and Desperation is there's so much more choice, I think, I see in The Stand. Mm. I think people are really deciding which way they want to go. And here, I think, and this is where the AA stuff kind of comes in. I think here, I think we see characters struggling with the idea that maybe they don't have choice and that they are not as powerful as, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's the thing that gets me. And where is where I love desperation in the struggle, because I think he does a fantastic job of really exploring what this means on a day to day basis to say, I don't have control over my life and how scary that is and how heartbreaking that can be. And that is like an entryway into me wrestling with that. What I don't think I like is the ultimate conclusion. I feel like he's coming to because I feel mm-hmm. like there is I, I think manipulation is too harsh of a word But I feel like King comes to his conclusion at the end of the book, and it's not the conclusion that I want. And if it is, Mm. and I just want to say to everyone listening, like, these are my personal ideas, and I don't want (laughs) anyone to feel like I'm judging. Like, I feel like this is just something we all kind of have to wrestle Mm -hmm. with for ourselves, you know? I
1: want to add, as everyone else did, that I was very fortunate to be raised without religion. Everyone else had to get in there, like... (laughs) you know, how I was raised, um, which has made it much easier for me. Like when I got into AA, for instance, I was like, all right, you know, okay. Like God, of my understanding, which is what they ask you to Mm -hmm. to have in AA. I could, all right. You know, I can come up with a God that seems pretty cool. And also I should be dead and I'm not. So I'm willing to believe that Mm -hmm. there is some reason that I'm alive. That was kind of my initial way of being able to accept the idea of a higher power. Um, that, that can get you pretty far, by the way, the whole, I should be dead. I'm not yeah. part for people mm-hmm. who are in addiction. Um, yep. And, uh, cause it's true for me, like a thousand times over. And one of the things I connect with, with, with Johnny Marinville is, um, how he talks about his brushes with death and all those times that he should be yeah. dead and he's not. And he kind of has to kind of think about, well, maybe there's a reason, um, and yeah. then I have to say, Jen, I really I never quite connected the whole powerless over, you know, drugs and alcohol and powerless over my, you know, things outside myself with this particular kind of narrative plot in the stand or in the in desperation. And that's that's really cool.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think um I was thinking a lot about The idea of cruelty as it existed uh in the stand because i think i was reading desperation as i was watching the cbs we just you know finished Mm -hmm. recapping the cbs all-access miniseries and i guess one of the the only times that i think that series really kind of captured the idea of what kind of god exists within the world of the stand was at the end when um you know spoiler alert for the the stand but um (laughs) When uh, sort of you know the hand of God kind of falls down, but it's you know basically shooting these lightning bolts throughout the casino, yeah. And it's um, and you do see that there's this kind of uprising against Randall Flagg in those final moments, which is something we we see a little bit in the '94 version and in the book, but here it's a bit more pronounced. All these people are are chanting, "I will fear no evil," and uh, there's like a couple people that you know the the people all begin turning on each other, but God is sort of not discerning in terms of who he mm. destroys at the end of yeah. that. Uh, you see the lightning bolts kind of cutting open, you know, exploding all the biggest villains that we we dealt with the whole season. But then also even the people who kind of, you know, turned against Flag in the end. Uh, there is that sort of unfeeling sense that, you know, um, the whole herd must be called. you know? Uh, my judgment is final. Like, you you waited too long to make your choice, you know? And that to me is, is very interesting and something I think I struggle... I mean, I struggled with God's cruelty when I was when I was Christian, cause I was a little bit older, you know, I was in my uh, late teens and early twenties uh, when I was evangelical. And I think it was really hard for me because uh, Anna, I love what you said about, about, creating your own God, like, okay, I can develop my own sort of higher power, but for me, I always felt very hamstrung by, I was, you know, going to a very deeply fundamentalist church, and there was a very specific idea of what God was, and I really struggled with that, and that was the thing was I couldn't sort of, there's no space within that faith to shape what God is to you. God is a very specific thing, and that is what you adhere to, and I really struggled with that, and it's something I still struggle with because my wife is a Christian, and I, you know, I love her church, and I go, but I don't consider myself a Christian because um, her church is really chill and they have a very sort of, um, you know, it's it, they they don't see the text as literal, you know, and I like that. But at the same time, I struggle with that because I and I always point to various parts of scripture where it's about, you know, the word <laughs> is the word. And we kind of have these fun devil's advocate conversations where my old fundamentalism comes back and I kind of try to poke holes in. uh in sort of the the more welcoming faith that she's experienced. And and I think a lot of that stems from, that was what I used to hear when I would see my buddies going to the campus church and I was going to this other church. And you know I would hear the arguments against that sort of looser faith. And uh, I don't know. So I think about all those kinds of things. They're all popping up in my head here. Uh, mm-hmm. But let me, uh, let's move on to, there's some other quotes in this Salon interview that I think are great. Um, Let's read this here. And it's fun because he references the left behind books by Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, which I read all of them. I didn't read them all, but I read some of them.
3: Oh, my God.
1: We have to talk about that sometime. Yes. Um, I'm actually
2: working on a documentary proposal
1: about Tim LaHaye. Oh,
2: my God. I would watch the hell out of that. Um, So, Okay. It's a mystery. That's the first thing that interests me about the idea of God. If there is one, it's mysterious and powerful and awesome to even consider the concept, and you have to take it seriously. I understand where Bill Maher is coming from when he says, basically, the world is destroying itself over a bunch of fairy tales and talking snakes and men who are alive inside fishes. I'm very sympathetic to it, but at the same time, given the cosmos that we're living in, it's very persuasive, the idea that there is some kind of first cause that's running things. It might not be the God of Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. It might not be the God of Al-Qaeda. And it might not be the God of Abraham. But something very well could be running things. The order of the universe as we see it, the interlocking nature and the way things work together are persuasive of the idea that there may be some overarching first cause. Um, and I, I like these quotes in a way because it's he's very much trying to not like pigeonhole his God or pigeonhole yeah. his fate. He's basically saying like the concept of a God is something that is very appealing. And that's something I think I, I understand a lot too, because I think that's what drove me to Christianity was, was the concept of a higher power. But then I didn't necessarily like the higher power that I was kind of being encouraged to believe in. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Well,
3: and when I hear him say that, I think, okay, well, you're talking about Ka. That's the overarching mm-hmm. force that you're thinking. And I really had to come to that point for myself, because I think the understanding that I had been, gr- that I had been bred into me about what God was, is very patriarchal, it's very narcissistic, and it's very controlling, mm-hmm. and that is so, like, entwined with my relationship with my parents, just in general, and that is what I really resisted, and I remember I read a book called The Shack, which oh, I don't know yeah. if you've read, but it's...
2: I don't know that one. It's
3: a, it's a very, very religious, like, here's, here's my message, and I'm going to beat you over the head with it. I found a lot of comfort in it at the time, mainly because it kind of opened my understanding of, oh, I can view God as as the way that it works for me. And then I kind uh-huh. of got involved with AA and heard higher power of my understanding. And I was like, OK, I, I love that. I can I can work with that. Um, it's just so hard for me to unravel like years and years and years of just this is the right thing this is the right way and if you're not that right way then you're you're doing the wrong thing and that's what i think is interesting in this book is wrestling i feel like king is wrestling with what that specific god is and i think when we have more thoughts about that when we talk about we're gonna talk, but- talk
1: over yeah. here i just want to know and anyone who's listening to this podcast realize it but it's coming to my mind as we're talking which is it's an irony that i Think King sometimes talks about but he hates evangelicals so much. He does. <laughs> They're so often They're the bad often guys. the bad guys. He has that whole book like um pretty recent one that's about the the tel- Re- revival. revival that's right the televangelist. like yeah. it's just such an interesting I almost have felt in the past like he's having to say like, "Yes, I'm religious," but don't you see how much I or "Yes, I'm spiritual" or whatever they say? In AA, like, <laughs> but see how much I hate religion. See, like I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you to be Christian because I hate Christians too. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just such an interesting tension in his work. And yeah. yeah, I just don't know how much he realizes he's he's doing that. But um, mm-hmm. maybe we're gonna get to the book soon. Yeah, there's. I don't
2: know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we will. No, I think it's helpful to kind of talk about. I think it's helpful too for us to kind of like touch on a little bit of our own, what we're bringing into the book. Yeah. But similar to what you just said, um, uh, in a Time interview from 2009, he said, I always wanted to say that you can still reconcile the idea that things are not necessarily going to go well without falling back on platitudes like God has a plan and this is for the greater good. It's possible to be in pain and still believe that there is some force for good in the universe. That certainly doesn't mean to say that everybody should go out and join the first United Church of my God is bigger than your God. That's half the trouble with the world, maybe more. So I feel like that relates to what you were saying, Anna, in terms mm-hmm. of his sort of resistance to a lot of modern modes of of religion. I, I
0: think just if I can weigh in on that, too. Um, yeah, sure. Because I think there's a satisfaction that we all have with finding hypocrisy, right? So yeah. I think part of it is maybe why it seems like he's picking on certain groups, too, is that, you know, you're constantly seeing a scandal of somebody was embezzling money, somebody has a private jet. And that happens all over in every ideology. But when it's somebody who's specifically preaching about your sins that you're committing, and then you catch them doing it, you know, I think there's a sick pleasure we all kind of get in that, seeing mm-hmm. them kind of collapse and crumble, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know also his daughter is a Unitarian Universalist minister, which mm-hmm. is... Um, not and I went to a UU church for a while and I really enjoyed it. But but it's not it's not really religious. It's like a lot of the people <laughs> that were there were like expats from church, you know, that had been yeah. like wounded by a lot of the hypocrisy we were talking about. Um so I wonder if that's kind of where a lot of it comes from, is that he's just around or hears from his daughter a lot of people that have been hurt by church. I put it in church um, in quotations.
1: So when I said I wasn't raised um in a religion, I should add that my it, to the extent i was it was uu oh really um yeah. which i often call like agnostics without the courage of conviction yep <laughs> like <laughs> 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 that's exactly
3: it
1: yeah <laughs> um so that's like to the extent i was exposed to religion it was to this totally like namby well i mean i sh- uu churches are amazing they t- tend to be very involved in their communities yes. and they do a lot of social work um and i do feel like they're welcoming to people who are looking for some kind of spiritual community that isn't you know um, patriarchal that isn't like, you know, there's a lot to be said for you, you churches. Um, I will say that it was having, having that been my only exposure to religion that probably caused me in high school to get really interested in evangelical religion and kind of flirt Mm -hmm. with it because Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, so you have a good and a bad, huh?
3: Huh?
1: Mm -hmm. All right. You know, um, and then eventually I, they told me I had to either get saved or stop coming to meetings.
2: So. <laughs> I had nope. I faced that similar uh, ultimatum. I went the other direction, though. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, one last quote here about the idea of God as being cruel. And this is from that same Salon interview. I find this quote very compelling. The other thing that's interested me ever since I was a kid was the idea that's baldly articulated in desperation, and that is that God is cruel. I always in my mind equated Mother Abigail with Moses and the story of Moses taking credit for the water coming from the rock and being forbidden to get to the promised land because of that one thing, that one slip where God is cruel, and I wanted to use those things and say two things. First, that the myths are difficult and suggest a difficult moral path through life, and second, that they are ultimately more fruitful and more earth-friendly than the God of technology the god of the microchip, the god of the cell phone. Um, I think he wrote that around the time he was working on Cell. Um, so interesting idea there. Um, and then he kind of made national headlines, I remember, in uh, with this NPR interview from 2014, where he essentially said, like, kind of, you know, confirmed that he believes in God. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember this being sort of a thing. And yeah, here's the quote. I choose to believe it. I mean, there's no downside to that. If you say, well, okay, I don't believe in God, there's no evidence of God, then you're missing the stars in the sky and you're missing the sunrises and sunsets. And you're missing the fact that bees pollinate all these crops and keep us alive and the way that everything seems to work together. Everything is sort of built in a way that to me suggests intelligent design. But at the same time, there's a lot of things in life where you say to yourself, well, if this is God's plan, it's very peculiar. And you have to wonder about that guy's personality, the big guy's personality. And the thing is, I may have told you last time that I believe in God. What I'm saying now is I choose to believe in God, but I have serious doubts and I refuse to be pinned down to something that I said 10 or 12 years ago. I'm totally inconsistent. Um, Yeah. And that's from this 2014 interview, which was, you know, about five, six years after he gave those other interviews and I mean, almost 20 years since he wrote Desperation. So this idea of choosing to believe in God is something that I'm not necessarily sure I see in The Stand or in Desperation. There is, I mean, there is a choice uh, that is made in The Stand, but it, each one, you're sort of making a choice to this, um, you know, it's more of a moral thing. Here is uh, this sense of, he fi- he seems to find comfort in the idea of God and he chooses that. And um, I find that interesting. And I think that's probably something that comes with um i don't know age and experience so any any off the cuff responses to that or shall we move on to critical uh reviews of this book
1: i i think that the stand has some choice yeah yeah jen if you want to go ahead like i'll
3: I yeah because I think that when he's talking about choosing like it's really hard for me not to hear that and hear his experience with AA and like working steps and like because that's a big part of it is accepting powerlessness and I also think like I I love the way he phrased that because it's not a choice and that I think that's my problem with being saved in air quotes is like you don't say the magic words and then you're suddenly like on the right path for the rest of your life and that's not how it works with addiction like you it is a constant thing that you have to deal with um because I got saved when I was like 14 I think and or um and I feel like a lot of religions like they have this either or like you're either saved or you're not and once you've cross that threshold it's like okay you're good and you do all the stuff and you're like a church person now and I'm sorry I don't mean to be demeaning when I say that I've had a lot of like the invalid evangelical people were really mean to me in high school so um, (laughs) I'm carrying some of those scars but I also mean to me too were they (laughs)
2: yeah but
3: like I think and I mean I I keep wanting to talk about this and we might get to it when we're in AA but like you you make a choice at a certain point to admit that you need help from something greater than yourself and I think that's what he's saying when he says I choose like I choose yeah. to accept this yeah
0: Kyle yeah. for I think Jen's oh,
1: ahead,
3: Jen's onto something but also I mean
1: Glenn Bateman literally makes a choice oh, that's
3: true yeah right mm-hmm. like
1: he says and sort of it's all it's a version of I should be dead but I'm alive to me mm-hmm. In that he's when he talks in in, about how like look we have the best (laughs) evidence ever that there is a god, so I'm just going to go with it. That's the kind of choice that I feel like I made, you know, to find a god of my understanding, which is that um, I'm going to choose to believe that you know there's all these different times when I literally like in emergency rooms and and you know close close um, calls with various kinds of danger, and I'm going to choose to think that there was something watching out for me. Mm. That's my evidence, yeah. And you know, so I'm gonna go with it. And I also, what he's—it's again, that's such an AA. It's so yeah. <laughs> what he said, like, and it's also what I love about AA is that you do get to be inconsistent about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, there's no pressure to like be like I'm gonna always gonna have the same God of my understanding, or I'm always going to every day believe to the same degree that I believe um, that I believed yesterday. Yeah. And I, like I said, I do. I think the Glenn actually stands in for that specific idea of making a choice. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. No, yeah.
0: I was going to just, just to expand on Glenn a little bit, um, with a little caveat too, it's just, I think though King gives such overwhelming evidence that you almost have to believe, right? Cause doesn't faith sort mm-hmm. of the belief without proof, but here, you know, they're having shared dreams in the stand. They're witnessing miracles here. I think you'd almost be foolish not to embrace the concept of a God. So when Stephen King talks about, you know, seeing the universe as proof, that's one person's interpretation of there being a God, but his characters get pretty firm (laughs) miracles. So, you know, I I remember reading like left behind series as we were talking about. And I believe the character's daughter is like a agnostic and something will happen. And I, as I was reading it, I was like, this is proof God exists. And she's like, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> and I kind of feel it's yeah, Stephen there's a King's... fucking Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like,
3: like, right. So that's the thing. Like,
0: I, I feel like it's like you all had the shared dream of people and you're painting portraits predicting the future in the stand, Glenn. Yeah, there's a God.
2: Yeah, and we've got plenty in desperation too, just pretty obvious uh, signs of God's involvement. But. Um... Yeah, let's talk a little bit about reviews, how this book was received when it first came Mm -hmm. out. Um, Entertainment Weekly, often a very kind publication to King, uh, gave it a B-plus review in 1996. They said, Desperation finds him near the top of his game, albeit in a very different incarnation than that of the folksy humanist who narrated The Green Mile. In Desperation, King returns to apocalyptic terror mode. He hasn't been this intent on scaring readers or been this successful at it since The Stand. Um, and then I was, uh, reading Brady Hendricks's, uh, Stephen King reread, which is always a great resource. Uh, and yeah, and sort of his review from his 2015 piece, kind of looking back on it all these years later, he called it one of the most profound Christian novels of the second half of the 20th century it involves a crazed cop ranting about Jews and blowjobs, cougar versus man combat, a live buzzard having its wings torn off and a man ripping out his own tongue. So, uh, bold statement there and very funny. Meanwhile, the New York Times, uh, when the book first came out, was pretty harsh on it. And I thought some of these quotes were interesting. Throughout desperation, Mr. King displays a perverse tick Whenever he creates an episode with either graphic terror or political bite, and there are many such episodes, a volley of nervous giggles, usually of an arrested adolescent male variety, tends to follow. For instance, when Tack deviously tells Marinville he can heal him, the novelist reposts, yeah, but can you win me a goddamn Nobel Prize for literature? The effect is if someone folded into a copy of The Inferno a boy's adventure book, The Hardy Boys Go to Hell. (laughs) The recurrent silliness shrugs off the horror and the social anger, as if Mr. King were admitting he doesn't really mean it. But what is he afraid of? To question his readiness to disturb his huge audience is probably going too far. Still, Mr. King appears troubled by the implications of his radical vision, as well as by his status as the world's most popular horror novelist. At one point, he has Marinville muse about writing a fantasy tale, perhaps even an outright horror novel, not the sort of stuff of which serious literature was made. But so what? It's a sour crack. Despite all the phantasmagoria, all the gore, desperation simply isn't willing to be horrific enough. At their most daring, Mr. King's novels promise subversion, but instead deliver a parody of democracy in which every literary effect, Gnostic apocalypse and sentimental piety, social fury and boyish titillation carries equal weight. So he's essentially pointing out that it's the pound cake (laughs) that is what really brings down... um, uh King's more but serious I, guess. Right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I find this book extremely horrific like yeah. maybe one of the harshest I've ever read of his because it's got the emotion like I've read some like off season comes to mind but there's not the emotional core in books like that and like this yeah. one that's why I had such a hard time with it it's because I would be reading and then a there's so much child death in this book and there's mm-hmm. so much like people like loved ones dying and people having to really confront that, that it's so like I kept reading things and then my mind didn't want to go there and it would make my, it would like check me out. And so I kept listening, but I wasn't paying attention and that's why I had to go back and read it again. Cause I was losing chunks because my mind just did not want to make sense of this. And when I th- I think that's where the God is cruel is coming in is King is really grappling with how can I believe in someone who where does my belief in God mean I have to believe that all of this is a plan. And I think, I I don't know if I think he really comes to a conclusion or if I come to a conclusion, but it just, this is a, this is a hard book to read, you know? And I just
1: want to say like, I think that when like Marinville like does that crack, I think that actually makes it more realistic. Mm. Like, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I don't know how much we're going to hit about AA, but like when you are confronted with truly horrific stuff, often, like there is an instinct to crack wise against it. And AA meetings can be full of incredibly, to me, hilarious, but other people might find incredibly insensitive, Mm -hmm. like jokes Mm -hmm. and laughter and whatnot, because there's a group of people who've all faced death, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have to like respond to it in some way. So I think that's realistic. And then also. I think that we talked about this um last time I was on um with Dolores Claiborne, right? Um, which is that oh actually Rose Matter was your last one. Rose Matter, right, right. He is such a sincere writer. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he is painfully sincere when he is trying to say something that he really means, like it just like bleeds off the page. Mm -hmm. And I think I can't think of a book of his that's insincere. I think that's one of the reasons like we nerds love him so much. Mm-hmm. Like he really means it. I mean, he may not get it right all the time, but I think what both Jen and I are saying about the theology of the book is that while he winds up in a place that I'm not sure about, I know he got there in a way that is meaningful to him, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And that means something for me. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah I think his uh, his prolific nature aids with his earnestness too. And this book was written in a month, which is insane to write a 700-page novel.
2: It you was know, a year. Oh,
0: it was a year. Sorry, I misread yeah. that. Well, nah, never mind. A, a year one month. Sorry, I read the. But regardless, he is a prolific writer, okay. though. He's constantly churning stuff out. And I don't know necessarily <laughs> that he has that time to reflect on it and maybe hide his beliefs. I think it comes across as more sincere, the fact that he keeps putting yeah. stuff out there. And just in terms of this being sort of a return to form, which I kind of like, because I love the monster versions of King. And I know there's some supernatural elements in the books leading up to it but like gerald's game dolores claiborne insomnia leaning a little more toward the drama less to the straight Mm. up horror um so when i was reading this i just thought it was cool to be like oh great now we have this monster and these rotting bodies and this is you know (laughs) it really is kind of king returning to form
2: yeah i agree um let's hop into the actual book itself um, I'm going to read this synopsis from Wikipedia, but if you guys have a synopsis, perhaps on your physical copies, um, especially the first um, first editions, that would be good to read as well, because uh, usually those are pretty fun. But here's what it says in Wikipedia. Desperation is a story about several people who, while traveling along the desolated Highway 50 in Nevada, get abducted by Kali Intragian, the deputy of the fictional mining town of Desperation. Intragian uses various pretexts for the abductions, from an arrest for drug possession to, quote-unquote, rescuing a family from a non-existent gunman. It becomes clear to the captives that Intragian has been possessed by an evil being named Tack, who has control over the surrounding desert wildlife and must change host to keep itself alive. They begin to fight for their freedom, sanity, and lives before realizing that if they are ever to escape desperation, they must trap Tack in the place from which he came. So how does that differ from perhaps the first edition? <clears throat> um,
0: Nevada is a mostly long stretch of desert you cross on the way to somewhere else and with someone else, if you're lucky. Because it's a scary place, headed down Route 50 in the brutal summer heat are people who never are going to reach their destinations. Like the Jacksons, a professor and his wife going to New York City. The Carvers, a Wentworth, Ohio family bound for a vacation at Lake Tahoe. An aging literary lion, Johnny Marinville, inventing a gonzo image for himself astride a 700-pound Harley. A dead cat nailed to a road sign heralds the little mining town of depression, a town that seems withered in the shade of a man-made mountain known as the China Pit. But it's worse than that. Much worse. Regulating the traffic is Kali Ender... I can't say his last name ever. Endergrind. <laughs> <laughs> it, whatever, an outsized uniform, madman who considers himself the only law west of the Picos. God forbid you should be missing a license plate or find yourself with a flat tire. There's something very wrong here. All right. And Edrigan is the only surface is only the surface of it. The secrets embedded in desperation's landscape and the evil that infects the town, like some viral hot zone are both awesome and terrifying. But as young David Carver seems to know, though it scares him nearly to death to realize it. So are the forces summoned to combat them. In Desperation, Stephen King's sweeping brush paints an apocalyptic drama of God and evil, madness and revelation. His genius for suspense has never been so finely honed. His imagination so shudderingly vivid as when his wayfarers and the people who dare to follow their course (laughs) begin to discover the true meaning of the word desperation.
2: It's true. Pretty good. So, yeah, let's hop over now. Uh, we've already discussed um, a lot of the spiritual ideas, but yeah, let's uh, let's zero in on them a little bit in a section we call The Hook. Ah,
1: yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future,
3: you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly.
2: So I thought it might be helpful to begin by discussing David's conversion um, a little bit. I think that's kind of where the God stuff begins. And it is sort of a, a kind of a whiplash moment in the book because we spend so much of the early pages uh, witnessing Kali pulling people over, terrorizing them, uh, bringing them to this small mining town, and basically people not knowing what's happening. Uh, the book begins with Mary and Peter Jackson, a New York couple driving, and kind of, I think their, their experience with uh, Kali is Is one of the most terrifying of the book uh, because there is just this general sense of authority being abused, um, your rights not being recognized, and also just a lot of genuine terror, such as when he throws in, I am going to kill you within the Miranda Wright reading, which is uh, such a cool little segment. And then, you know, that basically ends with Peter getting shot and dying at the end of the first chapter. So uh, we kind of spend the early part of the book with a lot of scenes like that. So then it is a little bit jarring when roughly roughly 140 pages in, we start to experience um, the the spiritual conversion, the Christianity of this 10-year-old boy. Um, and I thought that there were some interesting quotes here um, regarding his turn. So I'll just read this one and see where that takes us like most spiritual conversions, David Carver's was dramatic only on the outside. On the inside, it was quiet, almost mundane, not rational, perhaps. Matters of the spirit may never be strictly rational, but possessed of its own cleric and logic. And to David, at least, its genuineness was beyond question. He had found God, that was all. And this he considered possibly probably more important, God had found him. Um, I guess like when you guys were first reading this, was That intense spirituality, the sense that this is the direction the book is going in, was that something of a shock to you?
3: I think a little bit for me, mostly because of how earnest it is, like, Mm -hmm. and how innocent he kind of comes to it. And I think it's partly because he's a child. But I feel like a lot of times when we read characters that are religious or are finding God, it's either like the scales fall away from their eyes and they have this big rapture or they, like suddenly know a lot of the the things to say and I love that he's just like in certain moments when he's praying he's just tell me what to do I want to believe tell me how to do that mm-hmm. and I I really enjoyed that a lot and I thought that was that was an approach I could see myself having or I would like to be able to have I don't know yeah it seems easier said than done in some ways but
2: yeah yeah, I think for me, one of the things that really strikes me about the early chapters about David's conversion is this: is his mentor, the the minister who sort of is working with him, who is this very flawed, um, you know, very sad person uh, who is fascinated by the simplicity and the innocence of David's faith, uh, as somebody who I think, you know, probably struggled with the unsustainability that is a lot of modern Christianity. Uh, Well, not even modern, just Christianity in general. And that's something that I think I struggled with, this idea of having a very pigeonholed God, a very um, strict idea of what God is. This is somebody who is a preacher, but he's, you know, he's clearly an alcoholic. Um, and he's developing this. And I I do find it kind of funny that there's all these moments where he's like trying to prove that he's not being creepy with David, (laughs) but it's like, but I do find it interesting that he is so fascinated by David because I think it reminds him of perhaps where his faith started and how hard it is to reckon with the cruelties of faith and the cruelties of God. And what that can do to you as you get older, if you don't, don't properly reckon with it. Or perhaps if you only always fall back on the old adages of God is a plan, you know, things of nature, God is love. Uh, King never really touches on those concepts of, you know, God is love for him. It's like, like spirituality is both a calming spiritual uh, thing that you experience on the inside, but it's also something that manifests in a lot of um, hardship on the outside, I think. So
0: yeah, I I personally get frightened when little kids are so
2: religious
0: (laughs) um so in my mind's eye i saw isaac from children of the corn every time they talked about david that's what i saw was like almost him staring out into space and speaking you know like a vessel of god and just ooh, that is terrifying to me
2: (laughs) was he dressed like isaac yeah the black hat and everything too
1: (laughs) i wanted to say that um i really actually appreciate this section it is again it's a it reminds me a lot of my own experience with coming to believe in God, um, of being presented with what I thought of as pretty much a miracle. Like, I will not get too much in my story, but it was, it was an emergency room situation. Yeah. And also, um, like in that situation, it's a little embarrassing, but like, you know, when I woke up, I had a thought that was not my own to me. That's what it seemed like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when King talks about that being one of the major kind of expressions of David's faith, like when he feels like he hears something that's not his, like, I'm not saying, I don't, that's happened like literally like twice to me. (laughs) It's not like I'm like hearing stuff, you know, Um, (laughs) but to have a thought that seems foreign and it's a thought that's like, you know, like loving, kind, but also kind of, cool in its own way which is like you have to get through this like this is like yeah. this is it anna like <laughs> you know right yeah um so there was that that i really identified with and then i think it's some of the best writing in the book too like i have some yeah. word processor of the god stuff from this section for sure um yeah and also i just wanted to point out for us AA um stands um (laughs) that on page 185 he has david saying a prayer that i will read to you the prayer and then i'm going to read you one of the aa prayers because i think it's pretty similar like so lord make me useful to myself and help me to remember that until i am i can't be useful to others Help me to remember that you are my creator. I am what you made, sometimes the thumb in your hand, sometimes the tongue in your mouth. Make me a vessel, which is whole to your service. Thanks. Amen. And then this is what's called the third step prayer in AA, which is the third step is where you turn your life over to a God of your understanding. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, so that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. Mm, Like, To me, those echo each other in a really strong way. Maybe consciously, probably not. And yes, AA does throw in these and those for no good reason. It was, you know, (laughs) (laughs) prayer was written in the '30s. There's no reason to have
2: sure that kind of language, but. Did
1: that it. immediately
2: Did that AA prayer like immediately come to you when you read that section?
1: Yeah, actually. Like this time when I was going through it, it happens to be I'm doing some step work right now too. Um yeah. <laughs> but yeah, especially like the make me useful to myself and, um and help me remember until I am I can't be useful to others. Um that I feel like is a real seed in the third step prayer that makes it easier to swallow for a lot of us. Who think, well, if it's if I'm supposed to be a, of service, I'm supposed to be of service to God, and that's my primary goal. Then am I supposed to sacrifice myself? You know, mm-hmm. am I supposed to do that? And I think both the A prayer and that prayer make clear: like, no, it's not about sacrificing yourself, you know, it's about being holy yourself and putting that to service to God. Um, yeah. and then also, but I he doesn't explicitly say relieve me of the bondage of self in that prayer, obviously, but I feel like there is sort of this sense of, like, I'm giving myself to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I, I actually, I, I read an academic paper comparing the uh, religious themes from this book just to the actual wording of the Bible, and it seems that a lot of times when he takes the prayers in this book, the wording is not exact on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he had that exposure to it during his own um, experiences in AA and took it and just kind of modified it a little bit, you know, just to give it that king twist. <laughs>
2: Well, it's true too. I mean, people don't really, I think a lot of times, you know, we don't memorize the Bible word for word. We take the essence of it that really works for us and and yeah. kind of the, the prayer becomes shaped to our own experiences in our own lives. So I feel like it's more honest in that way uh, to the characters, you know, so.
3: And this is what I think I kept referring to earlier is I kind of see this entire story as King Wrestling with those steps and mm. trying to really work his way around it and like what does that actually mean to sacrifice and to do Um, I I have not worked any steps, so I don't have the words, but um, what does it mean to say that I'm going to be a vessel? Like who is the vessel and what is this vessel going to make me do? And that's, that's really scary. I, that's the reason that I haven't worked any of the steps is that I got to that first one and I saw that word powerless (laughs) and I was like, nope, not for me, (laughs) maybe someday, but no, I'm not going to do that. And a lot of that comes from this, this um, background I have of like, I have a father who's very narcissistic and that's... like codes a lot of what I see God as, as this is what you will do. I don't care if you understand this is you're doing it because I tell you to. And Mm -hmm. I feel like when I can rise above that and like kind of look at the bigger picture, I can see that I think it is more nuanced than that. But it's just it's hard to get out of that. And that's what I think I see with David and Johnny. I feel like they're almost like the angels and the demons sitting on King's shoulders, like whispering in his ear, trying to make sense of what that actually means for him.
2: Yeah. Uh, Similar to kind of, I feel like some of the things you were saying uh, touches on this quote from page 219. David didn't answer. This wasn't the kind of thing you could discuss rationally, even if there was time, because faith wasn't rational. This was something Reverend Martin had told him over and over again, drilling him with it like some important spelling rule, I before E except after C. Sane men and women don't believe in God. That was all. That was flat. You can't say it from the pulpit because the congregation would run you out of town, but it's the truth. God isn't about reason. God is about faith and belief. God says, sure, take away the safety net. And when that's gone, take away the tightrope too. I thought that was really beautiful writing and something that really resonated with me. And it also just touches on how, like he touches on the idea that faith isn't rational, which I think makes it, that's why it's so hard to write about it. Um, It's so hard to write about, um, god and faith and belief and christianity without sounding hokey or without sounding um i don't know simplistic uh yeah. there there is this there's a nuance to the way he he writes these sections that comes clearly from something that he struggled with and things that have been told to him it's really hard to accept that uh you know there will never I mean and this is why I think it's interesting that we do get quote unquote proof in the stand and in this but I mean I guess that's the thing that I always struggled with was the idea and 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 I I love what you brought up about Glenn saying, this is the most evidence we've had for God, because I had become so accustomed when I was Christian to this, the idea that there will never be proof, you know, ever. Mm -hmm. And you have to, and that's why my friends all thought I was crazy (laughs) when I was really Christian, because they would bring up certain questions to me and I wouldn't have answers. And they took that as sort of a a symbol that I didn't understand my faith enough, perhaps, but I think um, in a way it's, it's just representative of the idea that you are giving away a part of your rationality in your mind um, and replacing it with faith and belief. And um, and so, I don't know, I thought this was a really beautiful articulation of that and something that really resonated with me and, and something I think about a lot whenever I think about faith and, you know, and I think like, I don't know, I always apply it to like ghosts and shit too, because I'm just kind of like, I love believing in ghosts, but if we don't have proof of ghosts by now, we're never going to get it. So it's kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm well just on that really quick too it just
0: i the walking with no tightrope too that really reminded me of the leap of faith from um indiana jones and the last crusade mm-hmm. where you have to cross the bridge that's not there you know you have to kind of let go of the earth and just trust in god so i thought that was a fun line
2: yeah and that that you know that kind of dovetails with Kierkegaard and like religious existentialism and and those kind of concepts. Uh, you know, Kierkegaard was one of the first um, philosophers to really reckon with that, the existential quandaries of Christianity, and was something that I also took, I, I kind of started to take comfort in, in as I was losing my faith, it was something I kind of was reading to help reckon with what I had been through the years previous. But yeah, the the idea of the leap of faith, that's a very Kierkegaard kind of concept and, and one that I think, um, you know, is represented in a lot of ways here, especially with Johnny's character um, as we near the end of the book. So.
3: And that's ultimately what I think the stand is supposed to be too, is that you, it's a small step and you stand up and you say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to say what I believe. You know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's cool. Let's talk about the cruelty of God as it's represented in the book Desperation. Um, I've, uh, this concept really starts to surface near kind of the climax of the book. David has this pretty creepy um, kind of uh, vision where he's walking through desperation and he's seeing the various characters uh, that Tack has has possessed, including his mother. Um, And this section to me was very powerful. Page 440 in my edition. From the bushes at the side of the path stepped his mother. Her face was black and wrinkled, an ancient bag of dough. Her eyes drooped. The sight of her in this state filled him with sorrow and horror. Yes, yes, your God is strong, she said. No argument there. But look what he's done to me. Is this strength worth admiring? Is this a God worth having? She held her hands out to him, displaying her rotting palms. God didn't do that, David said, and he began to cry. The policeman did it. But God let it happen, she countered, and one of her eyeballs dropped out of her head. The same God who let Intragian push Kirsten downstairs and then hang her body on a hook for you to find. What God is this? Turn aside from him and embrace mine. Mine is at least honest about his cruelty. And that was a line that really stood out to me. Mine is at least honest about his cruelty. Um, I don't know. Jen, you look like you wanted to say something.
3: Oh, yeah. I had that in word processor with the gods because I yeah. absolutely loved that. Um yeah, because I think when I look at this now, I think it, it to me it almost reads as balance rather than good and evil, and, um, and maybe this is a longer conversation for later, but yeah, the, the concept of God is cruel is the one that I really, really wrestled with in this mm-hmm. book and that really kind of kept sticking with me, and I pulled a couple that kind of demonstrate that too, and one is when um, David is talking to Brian's mother in the hospital, And saying, um, how could God let that man not remember hitting my son with his car? Mm. Um, And then I think, uh, how could God be so merciful to someone who deserves to wake up screaming with memories of the blood coming out of my son's forehead every night for the rest of his life? And then later she says... um, A God who loves drunks and hates little boys. And that one is the one that stuck me, especially like as a drunk, because we're talking like it's a miracle that I'm alive, but it's a miracle that other people are alive or that I other people are not dead because of me, you know, Mm -hmm. like I have. So I that just hit me and it was like, is this a plan? Like, I don't want I don't want to be part of that plan. You know, it just it's something that really I'm still wrestling with it, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think, too, like, uh, you know, the example that gets brought up a lot with is God cruel or just is, you know, children dying of diseases or whatnot. And I think Pi, um, I think her name is Kristen, right? Kirsten. Yeah. Um, Kirsten. 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 Oh, like Kirsten Dunst. Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway. moment of um, levity, yes, thank Yeah, you. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, speaking of children dying, anyway, um, but no, but like in Brian's death as well, right, there's not really, it's hard to make sense of this, right? You'll never, You'll never comprehend it, right? You'll never get over it. And I think that lends toward that cruel God, right? And it wouldn't really be a Stephen King book, too, without a high body count. You know, I think some other authors might have, at the end, when they overcome the bad guy, you know, these characters maybe resurrect or, you know, go back to normal or travel in time. And I think King, I like that he kind of sticks with the old school. No, once you're dead, you're dead. And there's a lot of cruelty that is just going to be a mystery to the world.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I want to say that I think... In some ways, like once you choose to believe that there is a power greater than yourself, then the cruelty is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's expressed sometimes in more obvious ways, but again, I'll just bring it back to the pandemic. Like people are dying, like thousands of people are dying every day, and each one of those is going to seem cruel to a lot of people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so once you choose to believe that there is something out there, all of that has to be accounted for. And I was just thinking about, because I am rereading this, uh, The Shining like, right now.
2: <laughs> oh, nice.
1: Um, it occurred to me, because I was trying to like, if, if, in Stephen King's universe, there is all kinds of cruelty. And he since he believes in a God, like there has to be reasons that it's happening for him. Mm-hmm. You know, except I also think in the sort of uh, wider King's dominion, the other way that he talks about higher power is of kind of disinterested higher power, right? Like the turtle. Mm, yeah. And to mm-hmm. me, that is actually kind of a more, like, my, the God of my understanding is I sometimes say he's not a bellhop God. Like, I can't just be like, <laughs> Hey, need some help over here. Come on. Like, he's not going to like There's He's got billions of other people to be looking after.
2: Yeah. Also, mm-hmm.
1: is he really looking after every one of them? You know, I yeah. I find that hard to believe. My God has never been like, he's got an individual itty bitty plan for every one of us. It's more like mm-hmm. we're all dust motes
3: yeah yeah
1: and, yeah and that's kind of like in oh sorry go ahead. well if and if we're all dust motes, then some dust motes are going to go this way and some dust motes are going to go that way and yes it's part of some larger articulation like some larger i guess i think stick with the metaphor like wind or something but it doesn't mean there's an individual thing that's supposed to happen yeah. to you you know yeah it's just every once in a while i feel like you're granted if in my understanding in my life i feel like every once in a while i'm granted a vision of like what that larger beautiful like the stars in the sky kind of thing what that larger universe that is under some grand plan might be but me i'm just like i'm just like the the most minuscule part of that
3: well and to tie it to the purposeful and the random from insomnia it's like there's there are some I, in King's theory of that book is that there are a larger world of the dust motes, And then there are a couple of linchpin people. And I think we really all want to believe that we are a purposeful person. And like that, what I do really affects everything else um, because it's terrifying to think of yourself as a dust moat. And I think you, I would like to one day get myself to a place where that is peaceful to me that like, this is, this is something like it's, I don't have to affect the rest of the world but I think there there's there's a lot of fear there you know
2: Yeah I love that. I uh, just watched a documentary called um, A Glitch in the Matrix. That's all you about saw people. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun. And it's all about like people who believe we live in a computer simulation. And, and one mm. of the big, yeah, one of the big um, takeaways from that is that a lot of that belief is rooted in a certain narcissism. The idea that I am more special and everyone around me are NPCs, you know? Yeah. And that's, I feel like that's tied in a lot of ways to perhaps maybe the narcissism of Christianity, uh, which is that, you know, God perhaps has a plan for me um, that makes me, um, you a big grand plan for me, uh, that is perhaps more important than everyone else. But I, I love also what you're saying, Jen, about the purposeful and the random, because I feel like, uh, I feel like we do get shades of that here. And that idea of, of the people who actually are more important, like, um, you know, like the Patrick Danvilles, uh, like David Carver, obviously, I think falls into that here. He's the one who a child shall lead them, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. Speaking of God's cruelty though, I think the line that I think has been resonating throughout my mind a lot throughout uh you know in the in the time since I've read this is is God's cruelty is refining. Oh, um nice. that's sort of the answer that that I mean an answer that king gives us in this book. Um uh, and that's said by the uh, spiritual figure that David encounters in his dream that turns out later to be this younger version of Johnny Marinville in the Viet Cong Lookout. Uh, he says, God's cruelty is refining. And um, and then there's this exchange where uh, David asks, where the mine and God is the miner? Well, and all cruelty is good. God is good and cruelty is good? No, hardly any of it is good, David says. And so... Um, that to me was an answer that i turned around in my head quite a bit uh this idea of god's cruelty being refining but then a uh, you know about a hundred pages later when they're in the mine and after ralph uh is basically um you know his face gets destroyed by the eagle that tack has inhabited and David's and Johnny sort of has this moment with David where he's like, you can say all day that you think you understand God's cruelty, like it's a concept for you, but it's not real to you yet. And I thought that this that that um, that that uh, moment was really powerful as well. Um, Is God in you, David asked, can you feel him in there, Johnny, like a hand or a fire? Yes, Johnny said, then you won't take this wrong. David spit into his face. It was warm on the skin below Johnny's eyes, like tears. Johnny made no effort to wipe away the boy's spittle. Listen to me, David. I'm going to tell you something you didn't learn from your minister or your Bible. For all I know, it's a message from God himself. Are you listening? David only looked at him, saying nothing. You said God is cruel the way a person who's lived his whole life on Tahiti might say snow is cold. You knew, but you didn't understand. He stepped close to David and put his palms on the boy's cold cheeks. Do you know how cruel your God can be, David? How fantastically cruel? David waited, saying nothing. Maybe listening, maybe not. Johnny couldn't tell. Sometimes he makes us live. That line, to me, also really resonated. And that, to me, felt, um, I'm not somebody who's been through AA, but would you say that that's a line that um, dovetails with that um with sort of the theology of the higher power, the idea that God, you know, living is perhaps—I um, don't know—there's cruelty in just living.
1: I would say that I think it sort of dovetails into. Again, I think I bet, I bet Jen wants to be careful with this too. When I say when we talk about AA theology, it's like again, it's a god of my understanding. Like, right,
3: exactly. Yeah, there is
1: no official AA theology. There's sort of like some. Ways of talking about God that are consistent with the mm-hmm. way that AA talks about God. But the specifics of whatever it is you believe, there are Bible thumpers in AA. One of my best friends in AA is truly an atheist. Now, how it makes it work for him, I don't know, but he is. <laughs> um but for me, the cruelty of God is refining idea, to me, that is sort of like I, in order to Get where I am today, like I think I can say a lot of cruel things happened to me. You know, I also exerted a lot of cruelty on people. Um, Like Jen Mm -hmm. was saying, like it's not only a miracle that I'm alive, but it's a miracle that some other people are alive that should be dead because of me. Mm -hmm. And it is, it sounds so trite to say there's a, you know, everything happens for a reason. But then when you get to a place where like I am sober, I am alive, I am doing pretty good in terms of like not waking up miserable every day not hating myself every day which by the way the, the shining is so good about that
3: <laughs> yeah mm-hmm.
1: like that's my alternative is the existence of jack torrance yeah so i had to go through a lot of pain to get here
3: mm-hmm. so in that
1: way cruelty is refining cuz i don't know if i would have gotten here if all that
3: shit didn't yeah. happen to me so yeah I, I would echo all of that and that i think one of the things that i do like about L.A. L-A-A, <laughs> LA, <laughs> is that there is not one understanding, which was so opposite to everything I had heard growing up in church, is that this is the way this, I am the truth, the way, and the light. Um, and A-A, I really think is It's your understanding, because I think the cruelty being refining is another thing that I've really, really turned over, because I think that takes a certain amount of trust, Mm -hmm. because what am I being refined to? What is your end result for me going to be? If I'm a vessel, it's like what I said earlier, what what are you going to make me do? Um, And I think I have just recently watched The Vow Um, And I don't want to make, I don't want to equate any of what we're talking about to a cult. I want to be very clear about that. But there is a level of, um, in order to break someone's mind, you are consistently cruel. And telling people to ignore the part of your brain that says, this hurts, this is cruel. And I feel like that's where I get... The second time I read this, that really frightened me. Like, what is the cruelty going to end up being? And like, what is there a part of me that's saying this is cruel and I don't want that anymore because it's too cruel. And I that's where I think I really wrestle is. The understanding that I have of God and that I feel like King is kind of bringing out is a. It, I don't want to be refined to that, you know.
2: Mm, yeah.
0: Yeah. One one uh, comment too that I did like on in terms of Randall speaking about refinement is it's actually a mining term as well. Mm. Um, you know, when you're smelting, you're reducing it down. You're you're trying to get basically a higher purity of coal or metal. Um, so I think that's a cool little symbolism too between the China mine pit and yeah. the you know idea of like refining
1: spiritual so very present yeah. in the stand when they walk through the yeah. desert mm-hmm. and they fast yeah you know not entirely by choice yeah. um <laughs> you know I, I mean mm-hmm. I I feel like also just have to say something to Jen about the vow versus the cruelty which is that I feel like one of the things that I have taken into my life as a way of understanding spirituality and my higher power is that I'm supposed to feel the, the pain. I am supposed mm-hmm. to feel that. And one of the things I gain in sobriety is the ability to acknowledge my pain and live through it rather than escape mm. it, rather than deny it, mm-hmm. which is what you know, the use of chemicals or shopping or sex or whatever it is that mm-hmm. you want, might find yourself addicted to, like you're escaping all those feelings. And I think the vow is about escape. I think, I think you're right. You're supposed to ignore that pain. You're supposed to think that like, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And uh-huh. I think in some ways like my version of of what cruelty happens, what pain happens. That's not how I experience. I just experience like wow, this really hurts. I'm really hurting right now.
2: Well, that reminds and- me. I mean, I feel like that that aligns with Johnny's line about sometimes he makes us live like we can't. Mm-hmm. We have to walk through the pain. We have to we and like I feel like that's what Johnny can offer David because he has, you know, I think he spent his years as a drunk and as an abuser trying to hide away from a lot of Mm -hmm. those really traumatic moments and King uses those moments here such as the one where he got pushed in the pool by his wife and walked out holding a beer and everybody took photos of him and he keeps coming back to that memory because it is a moment of profound humiliation and pain for him that he can't get away- get rid of anymore because he ha- he doesn't have access to those, um, you know, to those uh those chemicals. And yeah. so yeah, so that idea of I feel like that line really hits because you think about the history that Johnny's endured and the pain that he's inflicted on others and that he's inflicted on himself, and that living that is its own kind of anguish mm-hmm. and cruelty because you have no escape from those things that you've done. Sound.
3: and there's a moment at the end when tack is at the very end when tack is trying to tempt johnny he says i can mm-hmm. make the pain stop that yeah. i wrote It's like that that's that's why <laughs> i drank i just wanted it to stop hurting you know and yeah yeah
2: um uh, speaking of johnny what do we make of sort of his conversion here uh does it strike you as as um authentic because you know he really gets on his knees and begs david to help him and it is uh uh an interesting moment of vulnerability for the character, and one that you know is a far cry from where we first met him, where he's you know a bit of an asshole, uh, and in here he's very much making himself vulnerable to this child who is you know in his belief touched by God. Uh, so Johnny, as a character, that moment of conversion did that ring as authentic for you or not?
0: Um, I I would actually say like I think the stuff talking about you know his ex-wife in the beginning. Um, You know, it seems like he's a guy that has a lot of guilt that he's carrying around and maybe he's not acknowledging Mm -hmm. it. And I think this is sort of an act of atonement. I kind of compare him to Larry Underwood from The Stand Mm. because he he has kind of that, you know, rock star artist life. He's causing scenes at hip parties and, you know, he's kind of in the national consciousness and discussion. Um, So I I think it was kind of a cool uh, transition from him. And I think he just was ready to kind of step it up and be the hero after being the villain for so many years.
1: I have a tangent. Do it. Who do we think King is thinking of when he could, <laughs> with Johnny Marronville? Because he seems to have the cultural cachet of a Stephen King, let's say. Yeah, mm-hmm. but he's supposed to be like yep. I guess Norman Mailer, but because I'm trying. That's literally what I'm trying to think notes, of. Like yeah. today, <laughs> yeah. who the fuck? Like, what author is considered Hunter like S. to be Thompson. Nobel Prize worthy, <laughs> or at least in that like range, and just kind of a rock star? -hmm. Like, I don't know. Like Jonathan Franzen, not quite. I mean, (laughs) the names
2: I wrote down were Norman Mailer and uh, uh, Sam Shepard were the people who I kind of I felt like those. Yeah, (laughs) wait. (laughs) Yeah, those were the two. No, I,
0: I had. hunter s thompson because they do refer to his style of writing as gonzo oh, interesting. Um, which was the style pioneered by thompson and oh, obviously and like
1: went to vietnam yeah, oh, yeah. Hunter s. Thompson did yeah. military
0: vietnam, road like, motorcycles obviously substance issues um i don't i don't think
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh johnny's quite at that level i think you know he's a little more of a literary deer so maybe he does have a
1: yeah see that's what i keep on having trouble with is like someone who's up with the Nobel Prize for Literature, but also. It's like if yeah, yeah, if Franson, if Jonathan Franzen was into like
0: guns or something, yeah. like shooting the corrections <laughs> with a machine gun, then maybe. I'm
1: mean, having having a hard time like finding like women at book readings throwing. It's themselves
2: like around. Arthur Miller and <laughs> I guess it's like Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe or oh, something, yeah. you know? It's uh like this this idea that he was with like you know. America's sweetheart actress or whatever. It is it is a very it feels like an amalgam of a lot of different archety- like uh literary archetypes, which to me was was amusing. But yeah, I I absolutely uh I think Norman Mailer was the one, although probably a more attractive version. But um but yeah. Uh any other thoughts on Johnny's conversion?
3: I I really enjoyed that. I not so much the conversion part, but there was a, a part that I pulled from page 481. Um, when a person stops changing, stops feeling, they die. The times you've tried to kill yourself since you were just playing catch up. And I like, I think that the conversion I see is not necessarily a religious conversion for him, but just a, right. a conversion of joining in the world again. And in that way, I really see a lot of parallels with Jack Torrance, too. Of like, I'm I'm doing the right things, I'm getting by, but I've stopped feeling. And I think that's that that felt really honest to me and something that I've really struggled with um is to like I know what you're saying earlier like to let myself feel things and to let myself know because you can't feel the good stuff unless you feel the bad stuff sometimes too and that's just you know so that moment really really affected me but I think also I whenever King writes a writer I always think it's like I always see him writing about himself and I think this is the person he's afraid he is you know mm. rather than seeing somebody else.
1: I confess, like, so of course, yes, whenever King writes a writer, you have to kind of look for the autobiographical <laughs> stuff. So I I was really stuck on the groupies. <laughs>
3: I know. I was like, have you been to some parties?
1: Don't tell Tabitha. Yeah, I know. I was like, geez, like, Steve, I know. like <laughs> does Tabitha know? Mm-hmm. Surely oh, yeah. she's not. I, I think,
0: too. Yeah, his, like, obsession with rock and roll, you can tell there's a little bit of escapism with Johnny, where it's, like, imagine if writers were treated like rock stars. Right, yeah. I'm a writer, mm-hmm. yeah. No, but I do the same thing. Whenever you see an author, you have to assume he's writing somewhat from himself. And then little details, you're like, is this just the character, or is this Stephen King? And it's it's always a fun game to kind of right. pick and choose and fantasize about Stephen just hauling ass on a Harley with a bunch of girls <laughs> chasing him down the road. Yeah,
2: I have some more thoughts in Heroes and Villains about his... Um, uh, I don't know. we'll we'll get to it. I'll talk about it later. But, um, but yeah, I think, I, I guess the way that I perceive his, his, um, his conversion, quote unquote, is, is this just kind of a humbling, right? It's, um, yeah. which to me yeah. is, it just made me think a lot about nudging yourself out of being the most important person in your life, perhaps, you know, um, and acknowledging that higher power and accepting help you know Mm -hmm. um that was what that moment really resonated as to me and 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 something that I found I found you know for the most part uh profoundly moving and um if you know it's I think I think sometimes it's hard for me to reckon with the things David says uh as a 10 year old boy uh because they can be so you know poetic and and mature uh Mm -hmm. and so I think sometimes perhaps the impact of certain scenes was was nullified by me imagining a this happening with a ten-year-old boy. So, <laughs> um, let's pivot over to the concept of a higher power. Um, I pulled some. I pulled some uh, uh, stuff from recovery.org, which I don't know if that's the best resource. But um, uh, the second step of recovery being a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, the purpose of that being this step gives you hope, you're not alone, and something higher than you can help you conquer your addiction and despair. And as we've discussed, uh, the site included um, a myth that your higher power has to be God. This is a big misconception about AA. Your higher power can be anything that you believe in, the universe, nature, Buddha, music, love, Allah, humanity, or even AA itself. It doesn't require you to believe in anything you don't want to. Each step is a suggestion. And uh, yeah, and I just found some... Um, some sections that uh, that I think fed into that a little bit. Um, and one of these touches on the title of the book. And this was something that uh, made me think of one of the quotes we read earlier, which I'll get to in a moment, but page 446 in my edition. And what is the spiritual state of the faithful? Um, love and acceptance, I think. And what is the opposite of faith? That was tougher, a real hairball in fact, like one of those damned reading achievement tests pick A, B, C, or D, except here you didn't even get the choices. Disbelief, he ventured? No, not disbelief, but unbelief. The first is natural, the second willful. And when one is in unbelief, David, what is that one spiritual state? He thought about it, then shook his head. I don't know. Yes, you do. He thought about it and realized he did. The spiritual state of unbelief is desperation. And that just made me think a little bit about when King discussed earlier about um choosing to believe, and when he says there's no downside to that. Uh and that concept of, you know, if you don't believe in God, if there's you say there's no evidence of God, then you're missing the stars in the sky, the sunrises, the sunsets, all of those kind of things. And uh and I don't know, I think that that state of desperation for me, um, when you have nothing to believe in, then that is kind of your go-to state. Uh, how else did we perceive that line and how that perhaps ties to the title and the fact that this is clearly an important line for King?
1: Um, so one thing I would say is that to me, this really is a third step book, not a second step book, but um, oh, okay. <laughs> well, maybe it is supposed to be both, but to me, it is like the the third step being like, you give yourself over, like mm, you turn yeah. your will and your life over to the power greater than yourself. And the other thing is I actually just thought of this cause we're talking so much of AA specifically in this book. There is a very famous line like that we say a lot in AA, which is the gift of desperation.
2: Hmm, interesting.
1: Yeah, to be given the gift of desperation, which means that you have to get sober. Like there's just no choice for you, no mm. choice for you. I mean, there's always a choice. Like, I mean, obviously there's always a choice. You can just stay miserable if you want to, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I I wonder, I do wonder if like King even, even thought about that. Um, what a funny way to think of this book.
3: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, and the other a line that comes to my mind is living life on life's terms mm -hmm. and saying, I don't have, I, I like the stars in the sky. I don't have control over them and I don't have to have control and what i do is not that's i mean this is where i get stuck because i still really wrestle with a lot of this you know
1: jen call me anytime i you know <laughs> i think i might <laughs> oh.
3: you know yeah. like I'm, i I'm going... I do appreciate you helping me kind of work through a lot of this it's just these big clouds you know of things that are just it's a curse it's a gift of desperation in terms
1: of like when we obviously the gift of desperation is is how badly we need to change to get sober. And then I do believe growing up with any kind of um, set concept of God is a curse, especially Mm. when you're trying to get sober. I think there are two big obstacles getting sober. One is being very rich and famous. um, And the other Mm. is having grown up
3: religious. Uh, Well, and that's, I think when he says the scars, one of the first quotes, I think you read, I think Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of those scars.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, that quote too, um, life is about, is more than just steering a course around pain. And I feel like that applies, Mm uh, to what we were discussing previously, but I think just in terms of, of acknowledging that, you know, that is the difficulty of living is you sort of have to plow through that, but it does refine you and it does make you stronger. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and I, I did see the language, um, or at least things that spoke to addiction and that's obviously a very, um, common theme throughout King, especially during the period when he was getting sober. I remember when we uh, talked about Misery, which I believe was, it was one of the last books he wrote before he got sober. Tommyknockers was the last. Um, And, but (laughs) Misery and Tommyknockers, though, they're really, really filled with that language um, of of addiction, things that, you know, that's sort of baked into uh, the stories of them. And And then, you know, the stuff he was writing when he was sober, some of the first stuff he wrote, like the library policeman very much reckons with uh, sobriety, I think, you know, especially fresh sobriety, like just being right out of it. Um, But yeah, there was just a couple sections I pulled, uh, um, uh, one of which was when Steve and Cynthia are in the car and they... um, and basically the cantas, those little statues come out. Um, The language used here I thought was really evocative. Um, If he could keep them diverted from that piece of stone a little while longer, he thought he'd be okay. But for a few seconds there, it had been bad. Maybe the worst thing that had ever happened to him. In those seconds, he had known how guys like Ted Bundy must feel. He could have killed her. Maybe would have killed her if he hadn't broken his physical contact with her when he had. Or he supposed she might have killed him. It was as if sex and murder had somehow changed places in this horrible little town, except even sex wasn't what it was about, not really. He remembered how when she had touched the wolf, the lights had flickered and the radio had come back on. Um, and that moment there, I think dovetails with um, later when Johnny is in, um, basically in tax layer going there. And it says... And everywhere, everywhere scattered among the remains were cantas, coyotes with spider tongues, spiders with weird albino rattlings poking from their mouths, spread winged bats with obscene baby tongues. The babies were leering gnomish. Some depicted nightmarish creatures that had never existed on earth, halfling freaks that made Johnny's eyes hurt. He could feel the cantas calling to him, pulling him uh, as the moon pulls its salt water. He had sometimes been pulled in that same way by a sudden craving to take a drink or to gobble a sweet dessert or to lick along the smooth velvet lining of a woman's mouth with his tongue. The cantos' spoke in tones of madness, which he recognized from his own past life. Sweetly reasonable voices proposing unspeakable acts, but the cantos would have no power over him unless he stopped and bent and touched them. If he could avoid that, avoid despair, that would come disguised as curiosity. He reckoned he would be all right.
3: I mean, that's temptation. Those cantas are, those are drinks, you know, Yeah, they're there, you know? Yeah.
2: That's what I was thinking too, that the cantas very much uh, came to represent, I think those, um, you know, totems of addiction. Yeah. It's addiction.
1: Like I think that I I appreciate that he has, you know, uh, sweets and sex sort of in the same thought. Yeah. Um, Because it's all in distraction and um, it's not wanting to feel, like not wanting to feel whatever it is you're feeling. And yeah. yeah um, you know, again, <laughs> rereading The Shining, like he just, it's, I actually read The Shining when I was in the psych ward. Oh, okay. Um, one, well, reread it once in the psych ward. I don't know how they let me keep it, but um, the scene <laughs> where it was a public hospital, and I didn't have mm-hmm. a lot left- of. um the scene where the bottles reappear remains one of the most frightening things he's ever written for me yeah like Mm -hmm. to go as far as you can from all that temptation and discover the temptation is inside you Mm -hmm. is um yeah no he knows what he's talking about
2: yeah
3: and that's that life's terms is like these Mm -hmm. things are always going to exist and it's Understanding how to conquer them without having to physically remove yourself, you know.
2: Yeah, are there any themes that perhaps we didn't touch on? I mean, obviously, these themes regarding God, addiction, things of that nature are sort of very predominant, as I think we've we've demonstrated over the last hour. Is is that?
1: Well, no. <laughs> I think it's two good. hours, I was going to
2: ask. Yeah. We're going to take a break soon. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, one, one
0: one theme that I noticed though is the sort of the corruption of authority. Um, obviously, you have the police officer who, I mean, you have no choice but to listen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what if that power suddenly is corrupted? Yeah. You know, it's it's terrifying the idea of when he's reading them the rights and he's like, "I will kill you," yeah, and that just slips mm-hmm. in there. And as well as also the you know the David's preacher that has some issues associated mm-hmm. with him, you know, this higher power talk. It seems like everyone's answering to a different authority. And I think Anna said it earlier about like pride and maybe. Um, ego being sort of the fault of these villains. And it's... And Johnny Maronville. you see a character... Yeah. Yeah, and Johnny Maronville. But there's always like a hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. And as high up as Tak is, he might be like an it creature, but then you have like the Crimson King. You always have someone above them. Same with Randall Flagg. His flaw is his ego because as powerful as he is, there's always someone a little bit higher. So seeing some of the like Cantas and Cantoy, it was just interesting to see uh, sort of the ranking of authority and where it breaks yeah. down.
1: I think there are themes to King, um, which, and again, anyone listening to this podcast would recognize, but childhood
2: yeah. is in this mm-hmm. as
1: well. Um, and some of the beautiful writing in the early David scenes, um, is, is, you know, he does it really well. He does the corruption of childhood or not corruption necessarily. Cause I think what happens with David isn't corruption. Um, it's just loss.
3: Yeah. You know? mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's where we'll be calling it for this week, constant listeners. Stay tuned for part two on desperation, and as always, enjoy these long days and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends!
0: God, I got some hot friends! I got some hot friends.